Tracy McCauley. I'm Nathan Wayne. And I'm Liz Wong. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to CardioScripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. Today, I am happy to introduce a repeat guest here on CardioScripts, Dr. Paul Dobish, who is a professor of pharmacy practice with the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska, where he maintains a clinical practice with cardiology services. His area of teaching and scholarly focus is ischemic heart disease and antithrombotic therapy. And as many of you know, Dr. Dobish is a highly recognized and decorated educator. And so we are so pleased he could join us to share his expertise today. Thank you for that kind introduction. Well, thanks for being with me. I think we're going to talk about something that is of interest to a lot of us across the country right now, and that's the Michelle trial presented originally in August 2021 at the ESC Congress, but the full publication made it out in Lancet on New Year's Day 2022. So Michelle was an open label randomized controlled trial undertaken at 14 centers in Brazil with the goal to evaluate rivaroxaban 10 milligram daily compared to placebo in patients discharged after hospitalization for COVID-19 infection. Patients included were greater than 18 and had been hospitalized for a minimum of three days with COVID-19 infection and had received standard dose thromboprophylaxis while hospitalized. They had a total modified improved venous thromboembolism score of greater than or equal to four, or they could be two to three with a D-dimer that was greater than 500. So the key exclusion criteria were they couldn't have had any bleeding within the last three months, surgery, biopsy, or trauma within the last four weeks, or have those things planned. They also couldn't have required anticoagulation after discharge. So that's a slew of reasons they couldn't be included, as well as that they couldn't be on dual antiplatelet therapy during the hospital stay or post-discharge. They also excluded patients with chronic kidney disease. And there's, you know, a whole list of things that that people were excluded for, but those are the highlights. The primary endpoint was a large composite endpoint of essentially any VTE or arterial thrombotic event or death. So included symptomatic, also VTE related death or bilateral VTE, symptomatic arterial thromboembolism, MI or non-hemorrhagic stroke, along with cardiovascular death. The key secondary outcome was the incidence of major bleeding according to the ISTH criteria. All in all, they included 320 patients, so 160 in each group that were of an average age of about 58, approximately 60% male, average BMI of about 30. The index hospital stay was about eight days, and two-thirds of the patients met the improved score of two to three criteria, with another third having approved scores of four or greater. And 92% had a D-dimer above the upper limit of normal during the hospital stay, But remember, they couldn't have evidence of VTE or that would have been an exclusion. And only 5% of patients were on antiplatelets. The patients were followed for 35 days and the primary outcome based on intention to treat occurred in 9.43% of patients in the control group compared to 3.14 in the Rivaroxaban group with a p-value of 0.03. This is an absolute risk reduction of 6.3% and a number needed to treat of 16. None of the individual components of the composite endpoint were statistically significantly reduced. And then as far as safety outcomes, there were actually no major bleeding events in either arm. So Paul, before I get your overall thoughts on this, I think maybe we should state where we're at in the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S., just so this maybe ages okay. (laughs) As with all things COVID-related, I think it's nice just to timestamp our conversation, but we're currently in February 2022. The U.S. is coming out of the Omicron wave. 
but there are still over 100,000 patients hospitalized in the U.S. with COVID-19. So I think another place that maybe we should do a little level setting is, would you give us some background on what this improved risk is and maybe what our current recommendations are for thromboprophylaxis in the post-acute care medically ill patient? Yeah. So really it's a risk stratification score. One of the things that comes up is, all right, so does every patient, medically ill patient, let's say, who comes into your hospital, because it's really developed for medically ill patients. And so does everybody need to get prophylaxis? No, but we have to assess everybody's risk. And so the improved score takes into account different things, you know, history of VTE, you know, age, and a number of other factors that, that goes into that score. And, and typically we would say like a, someone with an improved score of greater than three probably requires inpatient prophylaxis. So what they did in this study is they went after a kind of a higher score, at least four more. And the other thing too, is that so when they talk about the two to three plus the D-dimer, there's actually, there is a scoring system called the improved DD. So it's the improved score. And then it adds two points if you have an elevated D-dimer, which, you know, is appropriate because elevated D-dimer doesn't necessarily tell us if someone has clot or not, but it is very good at predicting who might get clot because it is also a measure of A, infection and B, inflammation, which are very prominent, obviously, in patients with COVID. Between that and the Padua score would be the two most commonly risk assessments. You know, I think really kind of what they were using here was improve or with a mix of the improved DD score. And as far as guidelines or recommendations right now, so maybe taking COVID out of the picture, medically ill patients after an acute hospital stay, is there a recommendation to give them thromboprophylaxis? So there's a number of things that have been studied. Anoxaparin was studied, you know, for an extra 30 days after discharge and showed benefit, but increased major bleeds. Apixaban's been studied and actually in the ADOPT trial showed no benefit and still increased major bleeding. But uniquely, we have data with both rivaroxaban in the Magellan trial and with batrixaban in the APEX trial showing a significant benefit and assuming you exclude patients at high risk of bleeding without increasing major bleeds. Unfortunately, batrixaban at this current time is no longer commercially available. And so whether or not a, you know, a company decides to pick that drug up uh, eventually, but it is currently not uh, commercially available because nobody owns it. <laughs> so, but right now, as far as guidelines go, if you look at ACCP or ASH or something like that, extended prophylaxis of medically ill is not recommended, but you have to remember that those guidelines were written before we had the, the current data from Apex and Magellan. The AC forum, anticoagulation forum, does suggest extended prophylaxis in patients who meet the appropriate risk. And the North American Thrombosis Foundation, they actually have an excellent paper that was published in the Annals of Medicine that uh, describes and supports the use of extended prophylaxis. So there is definitely a note of this. As far as guidelines, it's a little bit mixed, but I think a lot of that has to do with the timing of the data. Yeah, and I always think the um, shorter hospital stays get because of the pressure, and I think that's even been made more profound during this pandemic, the shorter yeah. hospital stays, the more issues we have where people are recovering at home. So their risk yeah. really hasn't changed when they go from our bed to their bed. And that's, you know, that's kind of where the, the whole concept of this is, has come from. I mean, we know from Spencer's data uh, out of the Boston area over a decade ago that a patient who, a medically ill patients who have a VTE event, uh, 67% happen within 30 days of discharge. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's clearly a high-risk window, and that's what the extended prophylaxis is basically trying to tackle. So let's add in COVID then. What have we yep. learned about the, the risk of this infection in particular related to thromboembolism? 
Yeah, so there is a really huge risk. So Dr. Trujillo and I wrote a paper in pharmacotherapy that was published back in October. These data are really, it's interesting when you look at COVID, because there are a lot of infections that can cause thrombosis. What happens with a lot of infections is that, you know, the infection comes in and because of inflammatory markers, tumor necrosis factor, interleukins, whatever, there's usually some type of tissue damage that occurs which when you expose, when you do that, you expose tissue factor, off you go with the clotting cascade. So there's a number of infections that do that. What makes COVID worse is that it also creates a hypofibrinolytic state, which most infections don't do. That's due to the fact that when COVID, right, we know that COVID binds via and comes in via the angiotensin II receptor. When COVID is occupying that receptor, one of the things that receptor also does is it breaks down plasminogen activator inhibitor. Okay, so a quick review, right? You've got plasminogen, your plasminogen activator converts that to plasmin, plasma breaks up the clots you form, okay? We're miraculously created creatures. We have checks and balances for everything. Plasminogen activator inhibitor, or what many people will call PI-1, inhibits that, slows that process down. And so since the COVID interacts with the receptor, those receptors now are not able to break down the PI-1, therefore, there is more of the, of the plasminogen activator inhibitor, we get less plasminogen, and we break down clots. So as opposed to a lot of patients, many infections, which you can get clotting, right? Infection is a big risk factor for clotting in the hospital. Um, they can get clots, but your natural fibrinolytic system usually takes care of that to a fair extent. Now with COVID, right, the same mechanism of developing the clot is there. But our natural defense mechanism now is also inhibited in which is why we see these numbers that are, you know, depends on what you read, but at least twice as high as we see from other types of influenza or other types of hospitalized viruses or bacteria. So does that sort of track with what you believe we saw in the placebo arm of this evaluation? Exactly. I mean, if you look at the evaluation, and as you mentioned, right, so they got prophylaxis after they leave. And so, you know, there's the event rate was over 9%. That's not a minuscule number. And I think it also speaks to, okay, well, the risk after they leave the hospital, like you mentioned, they're out earlier. If you go back to like, to say the Magellan and Apex trials, right? Obviously, nobody with COVID was in that study. It wasn't a thing. But if you look at your average COVID patient who gets hospitalized, there is not a doubt in my mind that over 95% of them would be eligible to be in that study. They have infection. They have respiratory disease. Uh, most of them are over the age of 40. They have significant immobility. They have elevated D-dimers, right? You start going through that improved mm-hmm. score, right? They just, they check those things off mm-hmm. pretty quick. And we know that when they go home, that they can have a fairly long recovery period. And so they don't bounce back. And that duration of immobility is probably longer than the average COPD or an infection patient. And I think that's what you see in the data here is that when they go home, there's a risk. What were your thoughts on Michelle on the design and and the findings? Yeah. So I actually was impressed with Michelle. You know, it's not a huge study. It's interesting. One of the major limitations, if you look at why patients didn't get into the study, uh, because they they screened like almost a thousand, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, it ended up with 360. Um, so like a, a lot of patients didn't want to consent, right? They worried enough about surviving and 
not worried about something that might be put them at risk. A fair amount of patients, they weren't a high enough risk. So this is, we're not talking about every COVID patient. They kind of really did a good job, I think, of selecting the higher risk for developing the thrombosis. And being in another clinical trial was actually a fairly high percentage of patients. So we're like, I'm already in a gray area. What are you throwing me in another gray area? (laughs) Yeah. So I think the major criticism of the trial is that it wasn't blinded. It was an open label study, but I would argue that they had a blinded adjudication, Mm -hmm. right? Which I think fixed a lot to that. And and the other uh, limitation is that they looked at asymptomatic events which some argue what's the, what's the clinical relevance of an asymptomatic event. Now, I will tell you that uh, asymptomatic proximal events have clearly shown to contribute to worsening events. There are a couple studies. One shows basically a twofold increase in mortality. One shows a 10 times increase in mortality in patients who after just, you know, basically if you have an asymptomatic proximal event versus no event, mm-hmm. okay, symptomatics are all taken out, just asymptomatic proximal versus nothing. When you go out 90 days, they they do worse. Um, And I think, you know, we have to remember that because the worst risk factor for having a VTE is you've had one before, right? You have a 30-fold increase out versus the general population. And why is that? Because once you have a VTE, symptomatic or not, the endothelial tissue in the veins never fully recovers sometimes. When the clot grows in and around the valves, right? Valves are supposed to close nice and crisp, but the valves in a, in a DVT, symptomatic or not, they curl. And so once again, despite perfect therapy, the, you know, the clot goes away, the valves may not come back to full functioning. And so this is why those events are so high. So having a event, even if it's asymptomatic, we probably don't know how much devastation that might cause downstream. But in saying that, you know, there weren't a lot of asymptomatic events. And what I thought was also very interesting is that, you know, when they scanned for the vents, so everybody at the end of the, of the study was supposed to get a duplex ultrasound to look for VTE events that weren't leading to symptoms. They also got a CT angiogram to look for asymptomatic PEs. And what's interesting is that the patients who got no anticoagulation versus the Riva patients, the River Oxidant patients had a much higher rate of getting the, getting screened right? I mean, I think if you look at the ultrasounds of the legs, it was like 57% of the no anticoagulation patients got it versus close to 80 some percent. Uh, I think the number was for the rivaroxaban patients. And if you look at screening for pulmonary embolism, 75% in no anticoagulation versus 85. So if anything, right, because they are more likely to be screened, you would think that the rivaroxaban patients, they would find more of these asymptomatic events that are questionable, but they still didn't. So I think that that actually, to me, adds some strength, as well as the fact that I think that also adds some strength in those events, because those aren't subjective events, you know, whether blinded or not, it's there or it isn't. So I think that that also adds to some of the strength. Sure. You know, I think, though, whenever we talk about anticoagulating a patient, even if it's a thromboprophylaxis dose, we talk about the risk benefit ratio, and I think the size might've got them here for us to really make a meaningful comparison. So what's your thoughts on this bleeding endpoint? Yeah. So, you know, major bleeds, none of none. Okay. Does that mean there's going to be no major bleeding? Of sure. If you look at just general medically ill patient studies now, once again, like I said, with Rivaroxaban before and Batrixaban as well as that, the major bleeding rate in both of those studies is a hovers in the 0.4 to 0.7% and not different than placebo. Even if you had higher numbers, I wouldn't expect to see a difference since we haven't seen a difference in other 
extended medically ill patients with rivaroxaban or patrixaban. Now, you know, the clinically relevant non-major bleeds, which we can ask, you know, then it's a discussion of, okay, well, you know, how does that rank, right? Because when, we, when we're talking about, okay, well, the benefit versus the risk and do they wash out, when you do that, you have to have events that are like equally important because a clinically relevant non-major bleed is basically, it's not a major bleed, but you seek medical attention. So somebody going to a urgent care because their nose won't stop bleeding is not the same as somebody having a pulmonary embolism. In the study, there wasn't actually even a difference in clinical relevant non-major bleeding. Now, I do think if there were more patients, that might wash a little bit more because I think that when you expose someone to anticoagulation, even at prophylaxis doses, you will have some more of those less severe bleeds. So I, I would not walk away with this with thinking, oh, well, there's absolutely no risk. I think that would be inappropriate. Well, and how long do you think, or do we know how long that pathway exists where natural fibrinolysis is inhibited? Yeah, that's a great question. The answer is I have no idea. You know, <laughs> you know um, I'm sitting here hypothesizing why this could be that they didn't really bleed is because they're so prone to clotting. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, I think they are very prone to clotting. And they, of course, excluded high risk bleeders. I mean, we learned actually in the initial analysis of Magellan with rivaroxaban, there was an increased risk of bleeding. And it was only through kind of going back and finding out who had the high risk of bleedings and then prospectively evaluating those patients in Mariner, were we able to get bleeding to a reasonable level, uh, an acceptable level where there wasn't a difference in major bleeds. So they followed that here as well. Um, you know, so if you're on dual antiplatelet therapy, like you said, you didn't get in. If you had bronchiectasis, you didn't get in. You had active cancer, you didn't get in. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, I think they've identified the patients who can get this prophylaxis safely. And it's, it's interesting if you look, right, if you go into the clinic, if you go into all the studies of just inpatient prophylaxis, right, because that's been a whirlwind. Um, one thing about COVID patients is they rarely bleed. Um, you know, as we, as we have studied therapeutic doses of anticoagulation, intermediate doses of anticoagulation in the hospital, bleeding rates are surprisingly low. And I think, like you said, I think that's because they just have such a propensity to clot. Really two mechanisms that are, that are damaged here. You know, I'm not seeing this a whole lot. Now my practice has moved largely outpatient, but I was expecting to see more people show up within that 35 day window on this. So what do you feel like the pulses in the country and what the appetite has been to apply the findings of the Michelle trial? You know, new things matriculate slowly. I mean, let's face it, right? Beta blockers post MI took almost a decade before it became standard of care, right? After the data came out. <laughs> We don't have a decade. Um, and so people who treat these patients try to make more attention, but even just the general medically ill pop, this is one thing I, I, I've noticed at my own center. And once again, just kind of chatting with some of us around the country is that when you look at like the data from Magellan, right? So in just the non-COVID patients, how many people are doing kind of the extended prophylaxis for the appropriate patients? And the, it hasn't really taken off a whole lot, but the COVID with COVID, COVID is where a lot of our clinicians and I think others have gotten comfortable with this, mm -hmm. right? This has actually been a decent uptake. You know, we haven't thought about extended profile. This is a new paradigm of thought. And so, you know, I'm not sure how many even know about the Michelle trial. I mean, it was only published about a month ago. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think though, I think the use in COVID patients is not where it should be, but I do think that it's more than it was last year at this time, despite the fact that Magellan was available last year at this time. 
Yeah. And I would say to our listeners who are largely cardiology practitioners, this is an important thing to talk about your internal medicine uh, teammates with because it got published in Lancet. It got presented at ESC. It's very easy that it sort of has not hit the radar of that group as much as it has our radar. Right. So what's next for this arena? What do we see coming down the line? So there's, there's several studies that are going to be coming and a couple that have been done. There was a study with rivaroxaban called Action, where everybody got rivaroxaban, like the treatment dose in the hospital and after versus kind of heparin or low molecular weight heparin. And there really wasn't a difference there. And there was a lot more major bleeding. And the study design, I think, is foolish. <laughs> I mean, why, why do you get a 20 milligram? I mean, I don't know why we would look at a treatment dose. We're talking about prophylaxis. Um, but it may, it probably got, it probably got gobbled up in the thought process between, behind treatment dose anticoagulation in these patients, which we know probably not necessary. I'm still a proponent of intermediate dose, but that's a separate discussion. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, I think the design of that study was kind of futile. There are some very larger studies. So Apixaban, which has not shown efficacy in medically ill patients to date has a study, I guess the active 4C study. There's also another 4,000 patient study with rivaroxaban. So much larger study looking at kind of the same perspective. So it gives us more data than we have. I actually have no hesitation in doing this in the data we have, uh, but there are going to be much larger studies. And some of those studies have like an aspirin arm in it as well. There have been some other places. So uh, there was a study with the Pixaban. It was the active 4B study. And so they looked at patients who were treated at home. So didn't get admitted, but got COVID. And so the thought process is, well, maybe they have uh, an event rate. You know, maybe they still are at risk. Actually, there's been two. I don't, there's a second study too. And I can't remember the exact name of it with the Pixaban. The one study that got published would basically showed no difference. And uh, it did increase major bleeding with the low dose of Pixaban. So just treating just outpatients. And there was, a, there was an additional study that was stopped for futility. So I think, you know, there's these two big studies with both Riva and with Apixaban. Unfortunately, right, those studies aren't going to basically complete till about August of this year, which means, you know, we'll probably find out the data, you know, and even if you found out in September, we're probably a good 10 to nine months before really knowing how this will impact us. I would also add to this, it will be interesting in how the event rates end up. Because one thing I would say is that, and I don't know if there's a difference, but the thought is that Omicron is less less invasive in the respiratory tract, probably also due to uh, vaccinations. And so does that correlate to a thrombotic risk? I don't know. I don't think so, um, but it's possible. Yeah. And I think that this field, um, when you layer in COVID-19 has just been so rapidly evolving and shifting and changing and are, what are patients previous immunity and how does that impact things? And the severity of illness seems to have a big impact on these things as well. And your home studies point that out as well, from a standpoint of the severity of illness has shifted to the point where the person might have more activation of these you know, inflammatory microbes. Yeah. Yeah. When they're actually requiring hospital stay. So it's interesting. And, you know, we haven't dove much into this on the podcast. So I'm really grateful that you shared your expertise with us today and helped us sort some of it out. Well, it's my pleasure. And it's, uh, I've been really passionate about prophylaxis and medically ill patients for almost two decades now. And, you know, in this COVID thing, you know, really these are, these are like the medically ill patients that this would, this would fit. 
Um, Now's the moment. And if anyone wants to donate to Paul's startup fund to bring back the Trixaban, then I think he's ready to start his own company. I'll be happy to buy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you very much for being on. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.